need some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor, may be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about, or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China, then this is your show, China Business Cast. Welcome to the China Business Cast. This week we have a very hot topic as we'll be talking about the trade wars and all the tension that is rising between China and the U.S. We have Richard Conrad on the show, who, from his perspective, explains a little bit maybe why some of these things are happening or what are the confusions that are going on between these trade talks. And he bases that on the perspectives that he gained through his own experience, how these different cultures think and reason in different ways, which was quite enlightening and insightful for me to look from that perspective. But before we jump into the episode, I'd like to do a shout out, or actually the previous host Slomo has requested me to do a shout out. He is spearheading a funding campaign to help a kindergarten in Sri Lanka. So the story behind that is yeah, Slomo and his wife and his child has spent there um, a few weeks back or a few months back, and they sent their daughter to that kindergarten for a few weeks or while they were on their vacation in uh, Sri Lanka. Now, the unfortunate thing that happened is it's like it's a very small kindergarten just run by two teachers and our small family. And one of them had had a heart attack, which is very unfortunate, of course. And they don't have enough money to pay for the surgery um, and medical support that um, that he needs. So the shout out goes, if you want to help um, the China business cast, don't just help us, but also help the good causes for the people that have made this uh, podcast happen. So it would be really great if you can donate a little bit of money. If everyone just pitches in a little bit um, for the cause, then we can have that uh, person at the kindergarten back up and running and teaching kids in the Sri Lanka uh, countryside at the south side of Sri Lanka. Of course, we're linking all the information and details to this campaign in the in the show notes um, and on our social media. But to add to that, we are also giving three copies of Richard Conrad's new book, Culture Hacks. So the first three people who send an email to support a China business cast with a screenshot um, that they have donated money to the campaign, those will receive an ebook of Richard Conrad's Culture Hacks. So don't be shy. Just a few dollars already helps out. So let's work together and let's get them back in good health. With that being said, let's tune in to this week's episode. All right. So today we got uh, Richard Conrad uh, with us for the podcast. And we'll be talking about, well, some of the tensions that have been building up between China and Asia and, um, and America. So let's give Richard Conrad a, a big welcome and see what we can learn from him today. Uh, welcome, uh, Richard. Thank you, John. It's a real pleasure to be here. So um, to, to start off, tell us a little bit about your background or what are you involved in, what are you doing, and uh, what's your relationship with China or what's your China story? Well, my background is basically born and raised um, in the U.S., very American, but uh, I've spent the last 25 years living and working in Asia. Um, I'm fluent in Chinese and Japanese, which I, I learned basically through immersion by living in those countries. And what's unique about me is that I've actually graduated from a Chinese um, university with a master's degree 
um, in economics, which I did as a completely local student. Everything was in Chinese. And the real value of that was it taught me how to think as the Chinese think and how to view the world the way they view it, because it is so different um, from the American point of view. So yeah, that, that is indeed very interesting. I, I have one other friend, but he studied Chinese, like Chinese language, and graduated. And that was also fully in Chinese, but doing an economics in fully localized, that must be, must be quite an experience. Yeah, the, uh, they have um, planned economics classes, Marxism classes. Um, doing econometrics and statistics in Chinese was also, it was a real challenge. It was, it was fun, <laughs> but a real challenge. So what, what was the, maybe the most interesting or, or noteworthy thing of, of that whole, whole experience doing like an economics and master in, in like Chinese at a fully local Chinese university? Well, it was fun because we would go into um, microeconomics or macroeconomics class and we'd have pirated textbooks from MIT And from there, we'd walk into a planned economics class where it was all um, based on Marx and Engels. And, and um, the two were completely contradictory. And yet the Chinese students saw no, no problem with that. It reminded me of a, 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 as when I was a kid and I would be in religion class and then I go into science class in the West and, and they would be telling two completely different stories, but we were comfortable having both of those stories. They were the same way with economics. There was the planned, and then there was the free market. And um, it, it was really interesting to see how they balanced those two. Yeah, got it. Were you, just, just for my own curiosity, were you also required to do like the, the first year, the two weeks army marching uh, training part, or were you exempt from that as a, as a foreigner? Well, I, I was there a long time ago, so it was it was a, it was more than two weeks at the time. But I was a graduate student, and that that was only for undergrads. All right, got it. You 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 managed to escape that uh, that part of university. As a little bit of context for the for the audience who don't know about, every freshman to university have to have an army training. Basically, it's it's marching all day long for a minimum two weeks, and then maybe in the past it was even longer. But yeah, um, if you're ever in China and at the beginning of the semester, like September-ish, if you go visit the, the sports grounds in a Chinese university around that time, you will see like 10,000 kids lining up and, and marching around for about two weeks. It's, uh, it's an interesting sight um, uh, to say. But yeah, okay, that's, that's about like, how did you come to China? How did you get to do that master in economics in Chinese? How, how did you connect from the US? How did you make that move? Well, when I was in college as an undergrad, it appeared that Japan was going to take over the world economically. And it seemed that they really understood us, but so few Americans understood Japan. Mm. So I moved there um, in the early 90s to learn Japanese, to learn their culture, um, to learn their business model, their economic model. And after a couple of years, it occurred to me Um, that they had some serious flaws. And I traveled to Taiwan a couple times, and I thought if the Japanese could do this, the Taiwanese could. And then from there, I reasoned if the Taiwanese can do it, then the mainlanders should be able to do it to rapidly develop a modern economy. And so after two years in Japan, I decided to leave and go to China and start learning Chinese. And 
When I was in the U.S., I noticed as a student that the Chinese that learned English the best were the ones that studied in the U.S. So I figured I should go to China and do what they do and, and um, just the opposite. And I'll study for a degree um, in China and Chinese. And that way, because it's not just about language fluency, it's also about cultural fluency. And, and that type of immersion is the best way to really understand um, another culture. And so I figured if I understood Japan and China, that would be um, enough to pursue a career in Asia. Got it. And, and, and what time frame was that? Like how long ago was that roughly? Pretty much the 90s. Um, I, I had a gap decade after college. I studied engineering and um, after university, my dad wanted me to get a job, but I, I thought, no, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. So most of the 90s I spent living in Japan and China. Okay, got it. All right, so let's maybe move a little bit more into the topic for today. So we're first off maybe going to... Do you have some insights on why the Americans don't fully understand the, the Chinese or the Japanese or with a big gap where some of, like you said, the Japanese, they understood Western culture or American culture and, and American business much better at that time? How do you see, why did, what's their different thinking there? So my experience was I, I felt it myself when I first moved over there. And then for the last two decades, I've observed Americans interacting with Chinese and Japanese. And I developed a framework to help me communicate more effectively. And I improved that over the years by watching other people. And I ended up developing a framework and concluding that fundamentally, Americans, Chinese and Japanese all think differently. And it's based upon speaking a different language, um, the different education systems we have, our different cultures, our different belief systems. And I noticed myself when I spoke Japanese or when I spoke Chinese, my personality would change and the way I processed information changed. So I developed a framework out of that um, to help me uh, communicate more effectively. But then the point of, I wrote a book uh, here called Culture Hacks, and the point of that was to share it hopefully to build a bridge between these three countries and three cultures to help, to help them have fewer misunderstandings and to understand each other better. But it comes down to just thinking differently. So what, what I'm really curious about now is like you're saying, depending on the language and the culture or the persona you're, you're are at that time, your personality changes. So with you being able to master Chinese and Japanese um, and, and American uh, language and culture, English, of course. Are you able to like switch your personality on demand, like on commands, like like that, or it doesn't work like that? Well, the context, the environment matters, but pretty much it switches on command when you switch into a different language. As soon as you start speaking Japanese, automatically you become. I become more polite. Um, it's more about harmony. It's very hard to yell at somebody in Japanese. You can do it, but it's difficult. Um, it's also very, it's more difficult to be friendly in Japanese. Whereas in Chinese, uh, it's very easy to yell at people. <laughs> yeah, very easy to be very blunt, very direct, very honest. Um, it's difficult to be polite in Chinese. I'm sure Chinese wouldn't like to hear that, but it's far easier to be friendly in Chinese. And, and, and I guess the point I'd make is every culture, every language, every the system of thinking is different, but they all, they all have their own strengths and weaknesses. And maybe that's one of the American uh, 
weak points is that Americans tend to think theirs is the best and the others are inferior. And uh, what I would like to communicate is that they're all just different. None's better than the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. Like, it's very interesting. I never really thought about that based on a, on a language culture or it, it would change my personality. So now I'm trying to reflect, like I've been here in China. Um, I guess I can be good at yelling and, and but also being friendly at the same time uh, very easily. Then I don't know if that's from just from my own personality or influenced by the culture. Like, the, like it's giving me thoughts to, to process later. It's interesting. Let me say one interesting thing here that I found in Japanese, in Japan, if you get into an argument, a real fight with somebody, that is literally the end of your relationship. It's over. Whereas in China, they say you don't really have a friendship. You don't really know someone until you've had a fight with them. And it's the opposite. After you fight with China, then you, you become closer to them. So that's one example of where the cultures can just be so different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, for me, that's like if, I, if I'm in a relationship and you never have any, any ups and downs or you never had a, a fight, then I feel like we're, we're not really friends. But that's for me personally. And then... I don't know how much that is influenced by being in China, but uh, I, I I did not know that about the Japanese. But yeah, very very interesting. But but how how would this impact like business and trade and and on a global level? How do you see the impact of these different nuances in these different cultures, languages uh, happening around the world? Okay, let me share my framework. Fundamentally, yeah. um, Americans and Westerners tend to believe in absolute truth. And whereas people in Asia, um, from India all the way to Japan, they believe in relative truth, that it depends upon the context. The, the next step is Americans tend to reason, and Westerners also reason in a linear manner, whereas the Chinese linear meaning going from subject to object, um, step by step, whereas Chinese tend to reason in a lateral manner, meaning going from subject to subject across subjects. And the Japanese are very different. Their reasoning actually is intuitive or feeling-based. So those, those are the major differences in our thinking. So can you, can you further uh, dig into the difference between like absolute and relative truth and, and how you see that happening? Sure. This, this actually occurred to me uh, on a trip to Tibet. And I was watching the Tibetans spinning their prayer wheels, prayer wheels, when it occurred to me that we as Westerners believe that time is linear, that it moves forward in a straight line, at least in terms of years. Um, for example, the Big Bang started was 13.8 billion years ago, and then time has moved forward in a straight line since then. And in Western science, until very recently, there was no concept of anything happening before the Big Bang. Or for religious people, about 4,000 years ago, God said, let there be light. Um, in the Judaic Christian background, and time has moved forward uh, linearly since then, and there's, there was nothing before that. But for Asians, time is always circular, everywhere um, and always circular. Of course, we look at hours, our clocks are circular, it's 8 o'clock, it's 8 p.m. again, or it's Tuesday again, or it's springtime again. But in terms of years, we believe it moves in a straight line. And my contention is that our linear logic came out of this belief in linear time. And what's interesting about linear logic is 
when you build from subject to object, you can build on top of ideas. And this is what led to um, the scientific method, which led to the Industrial Revolution. China was 50% plus of global GDP in, say, 500 years ago. And then the Industrial Revolution hit. So by 1950, China was down to 2% of global GDP. Uh, India was also a large share of the global economy, and it shrank dramatically. And what happened is, because of linear thinking in the West, we had this Industrial Revolution that pushed us way ahead of um, the rest of the world. Now, China, India, these countries were very advanced, but they never had linear thinking. They were never able to build on top of ideas um, and then share them and have other people build on top of them. And that's why they fell so far behind. However, uh, recently, of course, they have adopted the scientific method. They could learn it. And then now they're um, very quickly um, catching up. But that's the, that was, to me, a major revelation that our linear logic, which led to that Industrial Revolution, really pushed the West ahead for a certain time period. So that got me to thinking, well, how is the logic different um, in the East? And a lot of this came out of Joseph Campbell's work on mythology, where people in Asia believe tr time is circular. And if time is circular, you don't have fixed reference points. So everything becomes relative. Um, let me give an example, uh, a relevant example. In 2016, Xi Jinping was in the Rose Garden visiting uh, the White House, and he told President Obama, China has no intention of militarizing the South China Sea. Well, Americans, being believers in absolute truth, thought that meant China wouldn't put any military installations on any of the South China Sea islands they were building. But that isn't at all what Xi Jinping meant. In a relative truth society, you have to look at the context. He was a guest at the White House. Um, and also, maybe for that moment, he didn't intend to militarize the South China Sea. So I think that difference in relative truth and absolute truth can, can in that case, lead to a lot of um, confusion there. Because a year later, the Americans and Westerners discovered China absolutely was putting military um, installations onto those islands. And then the Chinese came out very recently, a few days ago, and said it, they weren't lying. It wasn't militarization. It was only for defense. So you can see in that Eastern context that truth is far more fluid and context-driven than it would be in our Western sense. And to give a counterexample um, with our belief in absolute truth, it tends to make particularly Americans very absolutists, which I thought was... Um, really borne out by George W.'s comment when he was president during the um, Iraq war era, where he said to all the countries, either you're with us or you're against us, uh, with no gray level in between. So those are two examples where that it's the absolute thinking of the West versus that relative truth belief in the East. Yeah, and I, I hear what you're saying, and, and I was about to to make the same comment, pretty much what what you were saying about like the militarization of the the Chinese uh, Sea. It's like <clears throat> when they're saying that, then probably they they have the intention of to not militarize it, but that doesn't mean they won't put any military bases or or uh, assets there, because there there's like. Truth is relative and, and layered and can be construed in, in different ways from, from that perspective. And I think that's very interesting to, to hear how you explain that.
Um, I think that's helpful for, for me and for the audience. If, if we take that into account and move to maybe a little bit more present day um, with all the things going on in, in the last month um, and it's only getting more heated over time, I'd say, um, how do you see what could be an impact on the current struggles on, around trade and, and technology that's going around in the world? Well, I consider this a key factor to understanding what's happening with the trade, the trade war and the trade war negotiations. Um, in a relative truth society, it becomes very much everything is zero sum. It's win lose. When you're negotiating, if there's a deal, one side will do better than the other deal. By definition. And so whoever is the relative winner in a relative truth society is the winner. And for that reason, you don't get um, trade deals between countries like Korea, Japan, and China, because they're all relative truth societies. They couldn't end up with an agreement because one side would always be doing better than the other. And so whoever was doing worse off would simply not agree. And so they don't have free trade agreements. But Americans and Westerners are different because with our belief in absolute truth, if we go to come to a conclusion and you benefit and I benefit, but you benefit more than me, then it can still be a good deal because in an absolute sense, I'm still benefiting. So, for example, let's say we have a deal and you gain 10 and I gain five. Well, that's fine. I'll agree to it because I'm still better off than I, than I started with. And so you get things like the NAFTA agreement between the U.S. and Canada and Mexico. Maybe Mexico benefited more, maybe America did, maybe Canada did, but we could come to a conclusion, we could come to an agreement because we were all better off. The pie's bigger for everybody, though it may not be split evenly. With East Asians in particular, they're very mercantilist, they're very relative truth-believing societies. They can't come to, they wouldn't come to an agreement unless they were the relative winners. And so the WTO agreement to allow China into the WTO was great for China. Uh, they were the major beneficiaries, but there was also some benefit that went to the U.S. And so the U.S. agreed to the deal. 17 years later, um, some of the changes they thought that deal would bring about in China haven't happened. Um, Xi Jinping has uh, made some changes that have, have uh, really changed the views of a lot of Americans. And so the Americans want to renegotiate that deal. But what's really interesting for me is Donald Trump, because of his background and his personality and his, his uh, real estate um, in New York um, background, he is also a zero-sum negotiator. He's very different from absolute truth-believing Americans. His negotiating style, there's going to be a winner and a loser. So now that he's negotiating with the Chinese, it's very difficult to come to an agreement or to make a deal because the Chinese will only agree to a deal where they're better off. And the Americans now, with Donald Trump, will only agree to a deal where they're better off. So yeah. it's extremely difficult for them to come to any agreement. So basically, like they're in a stalemate and they're waiting for one party to accept a loss um, or... or where they get the less benefit than the other party. Um, but due to their natures, that is not going to happen. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, I think game theory is the way to understand it, which is a little bit difficult for linear thinking Westerners because that's, um, it's not natural. It's more of a systems type thinking than linear 
logic thinking. But basically, we're in a quadrant where China's winning and America's losing, where they have the Chinese have this massive trade surplus with the U.S. and they have um, some people would say unfettered technology theft um, of U.S. IP. Um, and what the U.S. wants to do is get to a win-win situation where China will still have a trade surplus with the U.S. because they have lower cost of production. They have a higher savings rate, but it wouldn't be nearly as big as the trade surpluses today. U.S. companies would get more fair access to the Chinese market and China would tone down considerably their, their IP theft um, and cyber espionage. The trouble is to get to that quadrant China would have to agree to a deal where the Americans do better than them. China will still end up in a better position than the Americans, but in relative terms, the movement would be bad for China. And so they can't agree to that. So in game theory, the only other option then is you have to go to the lose-lose quadrant first. And that means a huge loss for China because they're the main beneficiaries of the current relationship and some loss for the Americans. Now, the Chinese have a much higher tolerance for pain than the Americans, so they assume that the U.S. Will, is unwilling to go into that lose-lose quadrant. We have elections. Uh, we're absolute truth believers, so we don't want any loss. Um, and so it's kind of a game of chicken right now. Now, if the U.S. has the nerve to push it into the lose-lose quadrant, and I suspect that's the goal, when, and my observation is, is that I believe Trump is trying to dismantle a lot of the organizations and framework that were built for a world 40 years ago. And whoever's driving his thinking wants to update that for the modern world. And the implication is the U.S. or Trump and his team want to get out of the WTO relationship um, with China and the U.S. and develop a new relationship from scratch. And so to ultimately get to that win-win quadrant, we have to go through the lose-lose quadrant. But that, of course, um, brings up uh, different complications. Well, yeah, it's 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 called a war, right? A trade war, or a tech war, and and I imagine if they go into the lose lose quadrant, then there's going to be heavy bloodshed on on both sides in in terms of economics and and uh, other complications that are go around. And it's don't not just for for U.S. and for China, but those complications will spread worldwide. And a key point here is. On a rational, absolute truth-believing, linear logic point of view, it makes no sense for these trade negotiations to fall apart because both sides are going to be hurt so much. And as you mentioned, there's going to be collateral damage. But my contention is that this is these are not absolute truth-believers that are negotiating with each other. And so it, it can be very rational for relative truth um, thinkers to end up in that lose-lose scenario. So, uh, with with that all being said, where do you where do you see things going from here? Is there going to be like a stalemate until there's a new change in presidency in the U.S. or um, things happening in China that make things smoothing out? Where do you see things going? That's possible. There are um, groups in the U.S. that would definitely. Um, prefer this trade war to get settled. And a new president, an absolute truth-believing president, would be more motivated to find a deal with China. But at this point, it's gone beyond just um, Donald Trump. And the 
dissatisfaction with the WTO relationship um, in the United States is becoming more broad based. And in fact, it's naturally more of a Democratic Party issue. So even if Trump were out of the picture, I don't see the U.S. and China coming to an easy agreement over the the tech war and the trade war that are that are taking place. I think it's become more um, bipartisan of an issue in the United States across both parties and also um, amongst the American people. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Well, it's like an interesting, but also slightly scary time, right? Um, not really knowing what, what will play down on this high level of, of well, game of chicken, basically. So maybe, maybe we can add in a, an, another question. So I, do you have some insights on the tech war as well? Because that's, that's maybe a point of view, which what I keep hearing from the Chinese like around me in China. Well, it's very interesting. It's, and of course, I'm just an observer here. But the actions against ZTE and then the actions against Huawei, it's not clear how much of it is negotiating ploy, a negotiating ploy, and how much of it is um, actually tech-related. There certainly has been um, a history of Chinese cyber espionage against the U.S. The U.S. is unhappy about that. Uh, the WTO has not addressed those complaints from the American point of view. And so they are going against these Chinese companies. Um, I think the details of it are uh, more Iran-related, supplying components to Iran. But when the trade negotiations broke down in, in May, um, the U.S. response initially, the first response was to enact the tariffs on the um, raise the 200 billion tariffs from 10% to 25% on those goods. And then pretty quickly after that, um, President Trump put Huawei on the entity list. And I think that was an indication of perhaps what happened during the negotiations. I have my theory on that. Um, and there's a situation now where the U.S. is pushing to stop supplying components to Huawei. And so Huawei has to see if they can survive um, on their own without access to U.S. technology, particularly chip-related. And um, the U.S. has to see how big of an impact that is on, on U.S. companies if they're really going to start losing some of the, of the Chinese market. We're in the wait-and-see mode right now because th that was a very strong move. Tariffs, the impact of tariffs is not nearly as big as people think. Um, but this this outright ban has a very large impact. This was a huge um, step up in the in the trade war between the U.S. and China. So this is the more worrying part. So the the, the feeling from what I get around me in China is that the Chinese people are feeling that the American people are scared of the quick technical developments and then like i'm talking in in ai and and facial recognition and all those kind of new upcoming technologies that are gonna supposedly rule the world in in a decade or more from now um and that they want to slow down or hamper those developments within china um in fear of losing out of like the technical warfare race 
um, sort of the space race, but then just in those sets of technologies. And that's the feeling what I get around me when I talk and in, in interact with, with Chinese people. Well, what's your view on that? Well, I think it's not quite that black and white. It's, um, it's more of a gray issue. One, one, from my, my, my framework, what I find interesting is that China was the first country to launch successfully a quantum satellite. Uh, it wasn't the Americans. And quantum mechanics are very nonlinear. I, I believe that lateral thinking Chinese are going to be a lot more comfortable with quantum um, theory and quantum mechanics than linear thinking Americans. Uh, Richard Feynman said, if you, un if you say you understand quantum mechanics, you're lying. And I think from a Western perspective, you know, as you, we read about quantum mechanics, it's very difficult for us to understand. And if China does have breakthroughs in that area, it will give them a big, a big advantage in terms of communication and cyber um, over the U.S. So the U.S., prob that probably is some truth in the Chinese view that the Americans are getting nervous about China's advances technologically. At the same time, uh, the U.S. does have legitimate complaints against China on cyber espionage and forced technology transfer and the China 2025 plan to, um, in a non-market way, promote their companies at the expense of Western companies. And so part of it is trying to create uh, more of a level playing field. All right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, and I, I'd like to... The hook back to how we started about uh, the absolute and relative uh, points of view of, of these uh, of different societies. With that, I think we're we're getting close to the end of our uh, conversation here. Um, what would be some ways people could reach out to you to to dig maybe deeper into with you personally or share their points of view? Um, what would be a good way for people to connect with you? Let me let me go back. I just wanted to make one more point. Sure, go. So I find an interesting example of absolute truth belief is that it ignores context and it tends to lead to a lack of common sense. And so one issue with Americans, and I learned this about myself and my country, is that our, our linear logic and belief in absolute truth causes us to lack common sense. And, and it can really be seen here. The U.S. let a communist country into their free trade zone. And now they're upset that that communist country isn't playing by the rules. And so the U S needs to go back and fundamentally renegotiate um, that trade relationship with China. The viewpoint, if we're really moving into the lose, lose scenario, one potential outcome here is that the Chinese are going to develop their own system and the U.S. is going to have their system or the West is going to have their system and countries are going to have to decide which system they're going to belong to. The current path right now, when you see the, um, the tensions increasing between the U.S. and China, um, one outcome here could be that we end up with parallel worlds similar to um, during the Cold War when there was the Soviet system and then the, and then the Western system. Um, I, th I think this is an outcome that we need to start considering. Uh, yeah, like I, I hear what you're saying on that. And well, the Chinese world is sort of already slightly disconnected from the rest of the world, at least if we talk about uh, technology and if we talk about internet, there's a whole different ecosystem going on here. 
which is very hard to penetrate or, or participate in as, as a non-Chinese um, person slash non-Chinese um, um, business. And with this trade war, I see this divide only only growing. And now with Huawei being forced to build their own technology, so they're they're already they've been preparing, from what I understand, um, because they, they don't have access to to the Google ecosystem anymore for for Android or for certain parts. So they've already been preparing their own operating system, and now they have to start doing the same with with the hardware with electronics. Um, so we could really start to see two different worlds and then if you're not part of those two worlds, which, yeah, then you have a choice, which one do you want to belong to the, the U S world or the Chinese world, or maybe just going to be a third world, uh, uh, as well. And it's going to be a bit of a game of chicken. Can Huawei develop chip design and chip production technology faster than the U S for example, can, um, develop independence away from Chinese rare earth um, exports. It's, it's, uh, the tensions are definitely rising. I'd say so indeed. Um, so yeah, like the worlds are very much interwoven right now. And some people, some of the views I've talked to well with Chinese people, they think it's not a smart move on, on the U.S. to basically force China to become more independent. Now there's still like a dependence on, on American technology and therefore that can be used as, as leverage, which is now being forced to develop by itself and then that leverage goes away. Um, so in the, in the short term, a lot of Chinese people and I feel there's going to be a lot of pain in, in China, but in the long term, when these two separate worlds really are developed and established, then that pain will go away and then the worlds live next to each other or uh, we'll see how, how that turns out. Well, the good news is the U S and China, neither are really Imperial countries. They don't send their militaries into other countries to try and take them over and then occupy them the way, for example, the Soviet union um, was motivated. We should end up in a pretty peaceful bipolar world when we get to that outcome the question mark is how long will that take and um, the potential for misunderstanding and, and um, miscommunication and unintended conflict in the meantime. It's going to put us, as the Chinese would say, or it's going to make interesting times. I'd say so indeed. It's going to be interesting time to, to follow up and, and see how things develop and I'd like to thank you for your for your insights from from your experiences being here on the ground a long time, um, and and your based on your framework from the absolute and the relative truth. Um, it is like insightful. Thank you for that, um, Richard. My pleasure. So then, uh, how could people reach out to you, or um, if they want to learn more about you and in uh, the book you have wrote, uh, written? Well, the main way is um, if you go on Amazon, you can find my book, Culture Hacks, Deciphering Differences in American, Chinese, and Japanese Thinking. Um, I believe reading that book will really help people gain a a deeper understanding of the differences in the way these cultures think and, um, uh, and really improve understanding amongst all three groups. Okay, awesome. Uh, That sounds great. Um, with that, I think we're, uh, we're through our time. I want to thank you for, for sharing all your insights. 
And maybe in a, in a year or when the time is right, we, we can revisit and see how things have developed and, and reflect on, on where we are in a, in a future moment. Uh, absolutely. Thanks, John. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting uh, rest of 2019. Exactly. All right. Thanks so much, Richard. Doing business in China is a complex world. You can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze. But don't worry. China Business Cast is here for you. Sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com. Thanks for tuning in.